Well, the entire Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not risen from the dead, us being here this morning in this building, singing songs, saying prayers, reading the Bible, listening to a preacher, would be about the most foolish and ridiculous thing that anyone could ever do. And of course we know that a lot of people think that. They're happy to have the opportunity of a four day long weekend uh, to relax, but the thought of spending this weekend doing something religious just seems pointless in a day and age when modern thought tells us people just don't rise from the dead. There are some people who still see value in the story. They uh, like the idea of resurrection. It uh, inspires them to believe that in life there's always an opportunity to start over again where there's failure or suffering or loss. But really, there are plenty of other stories out there that can inspire you to pick yourself up and move on again. Why do you need a 2,000 year old story for that? Well, the fact that you're sitting here this morning indicates either that you believe the news that Jesus is risen is true or at least you think it's worth investigating. Because if it's true, it's got to change everything. Jordan Peterson is a a well-known Canadian professor of psychology. Uh, Some people love him, other people hate him. But for many years he's been very public in his fascination with the story of the Bible and the story in the Bible. He knows that the world has been profoundly shaped by that story and he also acknowledges that the Bible points to something much deeper in the human psyche and more than just superstition, more than just religious beliefs. He's not a Christian. More recently, Jordan Peterson has been through a very difficult time. Uh, In 2020, his wife was diagnosed with cancer and then he himself went through a very debilitating uh, autoimmune sickness. In a recent video where he's discussing the story of Jesus with uh, someone that he often talks with uh, who's from an Eastern Orthodox background, he talks about the two worlds that we all have to come to terms with. One he calls the narrative world, the world of stories in which human beings try to understand and make sense of this world in which we live, Uh, stories that the scholars call myths, stories with meaning. But then he talks about the objective world in which there are historical realities. So we have the stories about Jesus and he's not yet sure himself whether he believes they're true or not. But we also have the fact that there is this man in history called Jesus of Nazareth. On this video he says, 
the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. And that seems to me to be oddly plausible. But I still don't know what to make of it. Partly because it is too terrifying a reality to believe fully. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. And as he's saying this, Peterson has to stop because he chokes up with tears. Because he actually believes what he's saying. The reality of Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, crucified and then risen from the dead, is truly terrifying because it would demand a complete revolution for anyone to believe it. What would happen to you if you fully believed it? Well, my prayer is that you may, that you do know what would happen if you believe it because it's happened to you. To say Christ is risen and to mean it isn't just to recite a trivial religious mantra. It's to say, I stake my life, I stake my death and everything on Jesus who was crucified, who was risen from the dead and who is Lord of all. You may wonder why we stopped at verse 8 of Mark 16. Mark originally finished his gospel with verse 8 and later scribes, many years later, probably thought, like you might, that it feels like a very abrupt, maybe inadequate ending. He makes no mention of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. And as you can see, when I automatically inserted the Bible verse, it added that text, which is, will be there in most modern translations, that the earliest manuscripts don't actually include verses 9 to 20 of Mark 16. There were actually three other, uh, three uh, longer ending, endings in total that have, were added to Mark's gospel over history. And the one that you have in your Bible is there mainly because that's the ending that was chosen by those who produced the King James Bible uh, 500 years ago. Now there's no question that Mark would have known about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. In fact, it's quite likely, extremely likely, that Mark was one of the 500 or more people who saw Jesus alive again. But he chose to end his gospel in this way because of what he wants us, the readers, uh, to conclude. In chapter 15, the account of Jesus' crucifixion, we heard the truth of Jesus' true identity coming from the most unlikely of people. Pontius Pilate called him King of the Jews. The soldiers performed a mock coronation and they said, Hail, the King of the Jews. And then the centurion at the cross declared, Truly this man was the Son of God. See, Mark wants his readers to answer the question, or to ask the question first before they answer it, Who is this Jesus? When John wrote his Gospel, 
He said he wrote it so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, Mark wants us to hear that claim on the lips of the characters in his Gospel and to answer ourselves the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And this is what the cross and the empty tomb demand of us. Not just whether we believe the events took place, but whether we believe what they tell us about Jesus. In Mark's brief resurrection account, Mark is emphasising not so much the miracle that a man who was stone cold dead is now alive again, but if Jesus truly is risen from the dead, then his identity as the Son of God, as the King of the Jews, is actually confirmed. Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection many times. His disciples initially struggled to accept the claim that Jesus was alive again. Not because they hadn't heard it before, because Jesus had predicted it, but I think because they, like us, were sceptical about dead people coming back to life, even though they'd witnessed Jesus' miracles, even though they'd actually witnessed Jesus bring people back from the dead himself. Think about that for a moment. If you'd spent three years with Jesus, seeing all he did, hearing all he said, surely it would be a no-brainer to believe he was alive again? Well, apparently not, for most of them. It actually took them to see him in the flesh, to see his scars, to see him eat and drink with them, to hear him as he explained from all of the scriptures how all that had happened was in the plan of God. But most of Mark's readers, including us, haven't had the benefit of that face-to-face physical encounter with the risen Jesus. As we read and explore the identity of Jesus, all we have to go on is the testimony of others. So all we can say is, I've heard about Jesus. I've heard that he's called the Son of God, the King of the Jews. I've heard that he was crucified, dead and buried. I've heard that he was raised on the third day and I believe this testimony is true. See, I can't prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. I can give you some pieces of evidence that all point in that direction. But in the end, faith in the risen Jesus is just that. It's faith. The resurrection is not something to be proven. It's something to be proclaimed. The declaration has been made. He is risen. And we're asked, are you prepared to believe that? Faith isn't believing something contrary to the evidence. It's not blind, as some people have described it. It's not anti-intellectual. It's not something for ignorant or uneducated people. Faith is simply saying, I can't believe this because I'm clever, because I'm able to understand it. I can't believe it because I'm more spiritual than someone else. I believe it because the undeniable truth of it has cut me to my heart. 
The Spirit has opened my eyes to see Jesus in all his beauty and majesty. And because I've finally stopped resisting his call to come to him and to receive what he offers. The water that I need for my thirsty soul. The release from my guilt and my shame. The promise of eternal life. The way that Mark tells of the women coming to the tomb... It's almost as if he's deliberately stripping away some of the things that we might try to use as proof. Firstly, it's the women who go to the tomb. The women who first hear that Jesus is risen. The first to tell others about it. Well, verse 8 says... um, but they said nothing to anyone. In the context, what that means, they said nothing to anyone on the way as they went to tell his disciples as they were instructed to do. Clearly they did tell someone, otherwise we wouldn't have this record. But in first century and Jewish culture, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Looking back, we say what a terrible cultural idea But nevertheless, it meant if you were making a claim as outrageous as a resurrection, you wouldn't base it on the testimony of women in that culture. Secondly, they encounter this young man who explains why the tomb is empty with the stone rolled away. Now, we know from the other Gospels that this young man is actually an angel But Mark reports it as the women experienced it. See, they weren't expecting anything miraculous or supernatural. They were expecting to anoint a dead body with herbs and spices. So they simply thought this was a young man. So there could be no claim, an angel from heaven told me that Jesus is alive. And thirdly, the only evidence they're shown is, I think it's there, um, the place where they laid him. And these women had seen where he was laid uh, after he was taken down from the cross. But the empty tomb only proves that the tomb was empty. It doesn't prove that the resurrection was the reason why his body was gone. In fact, the Jewish authorities tried to spread the rumour that his disciples had come and taken the body, which they saw to be a very plausible explanation for why a tomb would be empty. So what do we have then to enable us to believe that Jesus is risen? Well, the key is in this young man's words. There you will see him just as he told you. He wants the women and he wants us to believe Jesus is alive because of Jesus' own words and Jesus' own promise. And I don't just mean his predictions about his resurrection. There's a reason why Jesus didn't go straight from his baptism to the cross in a matter of days. Why he took three whole years walking around the region with his disciples, teaching them, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, performing signs that 
pointed to his identity as the Messiah. Jesus came not only to accomplish salvation, but he came to be and to give a full revelation of God, to demonstrate how all of history finds its culmination in him. So everything that Jesus said and did would not make one bit of sense unless it culminated in his resurrection. He would be no saviour from sin. He wouldn't be the Messiah bringing the kingdom of God. He wouldn't even be a prophet or a teacher because if he wasn't raised from the dead, he'd be a false prophet. He'd be a deceiver or a madman. Those three years would have been pointless without his resurrection, but because the resurrection is what it is, such a terrifying reality if it's true, it required three whole years of ministry to bring through to his disciples and to the people the significance of this terrifying reality. For the average Jewish person at the time, There was already a hope in the resurrection of the dead. Other cultures believed in some kind of afterlife, something on the other side of death. But the Jews alone amongst all the cultures looked forward to the day when this creation would be renewed and God's people would live with him here, clothed in immortality. Remember when Jesus arrived four days late for the funeral of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus' sister Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She believed that Jesus could have healed him when he was sick. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha believed that what the Old Testament said, that the day would come when God will come in judgment to bring an end to evil and injustice and on that day the the dead will rise and will stand before him and those who have been known from before the foundation of the world will enter into eternal life. That's taught in the Old Testament. And while the Jews longed for this day, they saw it as something in the future. Many had given up expecting it in their lifetime. Some of them, the Sadducees, had given up on the idea of resurrection altogether, believing that death was just the end. But Jesus is saying something remarkable to Martha. What if that future reality of the resurrection on the last day could actually be brought forward and experienced in the present? What if the security and the joy of eternal life could actually break in and break through and break down 
the hopelessness and the suffering and the futility of life now? What if this resurrection life could start now? So this enigmatic phrase, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, could actually be true. What if, to use Jordan Peterson's terms, the narrative world and the objective world have actually coincided in the person of Jesus? That in Jesus, the the promised future resurrection of the dead, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, actually burst forth into the here and now when that stone was rolled away and Jesus walked out of the tomb. Jesus still bears the scars of his crucifixion, yet he'll never die again. That's, that's the future breaking into the present. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is in the present tense. Whoever believes has eternal life. This is because Jesus is the bread of life and we begin feeding on that bread the moment we put our faith in him. What what does that mean, to feed on Jesus? Well, he explains, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's referring here to his humanity. In Jesus we see the Son of God uniting himself to us by taking on our flesh. And he does this so that the immortal, eternal God who by nature cannot die would be able to go to the cross and die and then be raised from the grave all in our flesh. Jesus is the immortal God clothed in our mortality, in the fragility, in the weakness of human flesh. He is God made like us. God able to call us brothers and sisters so that he may hang on that cross in our place, bearing us and our sin into the grave and so that he may leave our sin and our death in the grave and bear us in himself in his resurrection so that we mortal beings may be clothed in his immortality. If you are united to Jesus by faith, you're already a a recipient of resurrection life. Eternal life has begun. It means for us the grave is no longer the doorway to Sheol, the place of the dead. The grave is now the entrance into life. It'll be like going in for an operation. One moment you're being wheeled into the theatre and the anaesthetist is there by your side telling you to relax 
Well, at least that's what they told me. They thought I looked stressed. And then in what seems like an instant, you're awake again in the ward and you're recovering. Although unlike post-op, in the resurrection, you won't have the pain and the discomfort of recovery because you will be clothed in the immortality of Christ. It's not always easy for us to grasp this reality because we're still here. We're on this side still of death. We're in the place where suffering and pain still exist. We know the deep and the abiding grief of losing to the grave those whom we love. And we're not to deny this grief because we're supposed to feel the pain. We're supposed to feel the sting of death. It's supposed to strike at our hearts and force us to admit that that we and this world are not the way that we should be, that we are broken, that we're frail, that our lives are like a mist that appears in the morning and then it disappears with the rising of the sun. We're supposed to long for that day when God will wipe the tears from our eyes. But even in the depths of grief and sorrow and pain, we're supposed to know the certainty of our hope secured by Jesus. That's why there are few gatherings more profoundly and strangely joyful than a Christian funeral. For those without hope, a funeral is just a final goodbye and that's it. But hear the closing words of the traditional Christian funeral. As the coffin is lowered into the ground or as it's taken away out of the chapel, the final words are not words of sorrow but of victory. They go, we have entrusted our brother or sister to God's mercy and we now commit their body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our frail bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body, who died, was buried and rose again for us. To him be glory forever and ever. We may have this sure and certain hope of the resurrection only because Jesus is risen. Death is, in the words of our first reading, this covering that is cast over all peoples, a veil that spread over all nations. No one's exempt from the sting of death. It's the one thing that's sure in life, that our life will end in death. But the cross and the empty tomb now mean there's another certainty. In fact, it's more certain than the grave for one who believes in Jesus because he has swallowed up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people, the shame of his people, he'll take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. What a beautiful picture. God himself comforting his people in our suffering by wiping away the tears from our faces, removing our shame, enabling us to stand again, to walk with our heads held high. 
He turns our grief and mourning into songs of joy and gladness. Around the same time as Isaiah, Hosea also spoke of the time when death would be destroyed. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now these two prophecies of Isaiah and Hosea are brought together in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this passage is looking to the future when we who are perishable will put on the imperishable. We who are mortal will put on immortality. But that's exactly what happened on the first Easter Sunday. Where was the perishable mortal Jesus who'd hung broken in weakness and shame on the cross? The same Jesus stood up and walked out of the tomb, victorious over death, never to die again. And where is sin, the the sting of death? Where is, sorry, where is the sting of death here, which is sin? Well, the sin has been borne by Jesus on the cross. Where is the law, which is the power of sin? Well, it's been nailed to the cross with the record of all of your sins and left there. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been cancelled out by mercy and grace. I hope the wonder of this has hit your heart. It certainly did for the women at the tomb. Mark 16.8 contains some words that might seem to us not to be the most positive words. Trembling, astonishment, astonished and afraid. So what's going on here? Well, these three words in the Greek can be taken in a negative way. They can also be taken in a positive way. See, we may tremble when we hear frightening news but don't we also tremble when we hear news that seems almost too good to be true the women had just faced the most horrific day of their lives they'd seen Jesus brutally executed they came to the tomb to mourn expecting to never see him alive again thinking all of their hopes that placed in him were gone So how else could they be expected to respond except by trembling when they'd been told he has risen? A few years ago we lost contact with our teenage son who'd got off the school bus but he hadn't gone to the normal place to meet us. After a few hours of trying to track him down and as the sun was setting we were beginning to think the worst. But then suddenly the news came that he'd been found safe and sound. 
He was still at the bus stop waiting for us to pick him up. We'd in fact driven past him probably a number of times, but it had never occurred to us to look at the bus stop to find him there. But I can still remember the the feeling of relief, the trembling almost that came across, across me as all of my fears were vanquished. Well, that feeling multiplied by a thousand is what these women would have felt when they heard the words, he is risen. Secondly, astonishment. It's a translation of the Greek word, ecstasis, from which we get our word, ecstasy. If I said I'm ecstatic about something, I'd normally mean it in the positive sense. It literally means to stand outside yourself. It was a pinch me and tell me I'm not dreaming moment. But it wasn't a dream. Because for once, that which seemed too good to be true was actually true. And then finally, the word for fear isn't just used in a foreboding, dreading sense. It's also used to refer to how we should view God in awe of his greatness, of his power, of his love. It's the natural response of a creature who's come face to face with the glory of their creator. So rather than painting a picture of the women fleeing, confused and afraid, Mark's actually painting a picture of these women who had been amazed by the most exciting, mind-blowing news they could ever imagine. Jesus is alive and so all that he said is true. The grave is defeated. Death is swallowed up by life. The future is secure. Jesus' resurrection means not just that a man is alive against all odds. It's the start of a cataclysmic, history-making, destiny-forming, earth-shattering reality of the establishment of the kingdom of God. It's the resurrection not just of a man, but of humanity, which will in turn mean a a total renewal and release of the whole creation, the whole universe. And the enormity of this had gripped them. They were witnesses, first-hand witnesses of the new creation. They had believed this terrifying reality. What about you? Let's pray. Father, all we ask simply for is the gift of faith to believe that Jesus is alive. We ask for your spirit to be at work in our hearts to draw us to him, to be willing to lay aside all of our doubts, all of our fears, all of our sin and guilt and shame, to lay aside our hard-heartedness and our stubbornness and our selfishness and our desire just to live for ourselves, to turn to him and to receive from him the forgiveness of our sins and entrance into eternal life and a hope and a future that's secure. Father, this is our prayer. Father, we believe... Help our unbelief.
Amen. Let's close with our final hymn, a hymn about this deep, deep love of Jesus who gave himself for us. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.